My name is Rodrigo Prieto, and you're listening to the Cinematography Podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft, and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Ben, welcome to the next episode of the Cinematography Podcast. Wow, and I'm not even going to ask what episode number it is because I don't care anymore. We don't care. We're just going to keep on going. So we have an amazing interview today. I cannot wait to get to this interview. Jealous? I am. You have no idea how jealous I am. It's not a super long and comprehensive interview, but it's a really good one, and I really enjoyed it. And, uh, you know, one of our, our listeners actually from South America got to ask a question, and it was fantastic. Pretty amazing. So are you going to say who it is? It's Rodrigo Prieto. Holy crap. With the new Scorsese movie, The Irishman, he's shot several movies for uh, for Scorsese. He shot several movies for Alfonso Poirón, who's one of my favorite filmmakers, period. He's worked with Spike Lee, and uh, he's been nominated. Our second DP who's worked with Spike Lee. That's right. He's also been nominated for a couple of Oscars, you know, uh, Brokeback Mountain and uh, Silence. So lightweight. What you're, yeah. sa- what you're saying is kind of kind of a lightweight. Fresh off the boat. So uh, <laughs> anyway. anyway, yeah. Uh, so Rodrigo, uh, I met him God, 2000, 2008, 2008, I think it was. Yeah. Uh, w- there was a period of time where he was uh, working on a movie called State of Play or just before that. And there was a love possibility- that. I actually really like that movie. It's a really good movie. It was uh, possibly going to be the first all Dalsa feature film, but it was very a little bit early for us. Maybe it was 2007. Actually, ah. I think of it. So, and uh, so we did a bunch of testing. And was stuff. there ever an all Dalsa feature film? Uh, yes, there was a, there was a couple and there was, um, of course, maybe the most famous, uh, Dalsa movie was Alice in Wonderland with Tim Burton. Well, there was some Dalsa, but it wasn't all Dalsa. That was 50%. It was about 50%. Was Basically it? anytime you saw the Red Queen, anytime you saw. Oh, I didn't realize it was that much. Yeah, it was a lot. It was like 50%. So. Yeah, I know Quantum of Solace got a lot, got some use for it, but it was only in a few sequences. That's right. Anyway, it was uh, it was a really great interview with Rodrigo, and I uh, don't mean to go down this uh, this history of Dulce, but we should probably move directly into our George Foyt close focus segment. George Foyt's close focus. So, George. so you have a you have a topic you wanted to discuss. Yeah, well, you know, I happened to stumble across this article, and it was written for Medium.com, and the headline is: "It's time to address the elephant in the room. Influencers don't really influence anything or anyone." And I know this is sort of like a, hmm. a yeah, a, a, a bugaboo sort of topic for me because it, I feel like actually influencers do have some Man, influence. A good friend of mine who I went to college with, a guy named Chad Saley, I wish he was in the room right now because yeah. Chad uh, created a business called Social Blue Book. And the idea is for people in the influencer, YouTuber types, Instagrammer types to know what their value is to their audience so that they can charge appropriate advertising rates to their clients. Uh, this article here actually talks about the, and uh, I'm going to quote here, shitstorm that hit the internet when a boutique hotel owner posted a screenshot of an email he received from a travel blogger and influencer asking for a free stay uh, during Valentine's Day. So anyway, of course, it was very sarcastic and he rejected the request. 
But there was a whole bunch of fallout and flack then from, from that sort of thing. And the article goes on to make the comparison between genuine thought leadership and online influencers, uh, saying that there really is some people out there who are crafting the story, who are changing the debate, who are who are truly experts in what they do. Well, a thought leader to me is like a it's like an author or a, a public speaker or could be someone who's got expertise in something and some influencers have expertise in stuff but a lot of them are just like attractive people who know how to do makeup real good yeah that, that's that's true. i guess that's a that's an expertise as i say as a former makeup artist that's an actual expertise <laughs> well i, I mean you're, you're you're right about that and uh can i can i tell I you a random bar, story well, I, I don't think i don't think i've ever told this on here i, I apologize if i have uh-oh. um but years ago my friend jj mays was working for a company which will remain nameless and they needed. Uh, what does it rhyme with? Uh, I'm <laughs> sorry. I'm, I'm okay, not even going to tell you. Go ahead. It was not Maker, but it was a company like Maker. Okay. And they needed a, a second camera operator. And it's like, as I say on here all the time, I'm not a cinematographer. I know how to point a camera and get an exposure. But this was kind of like they were in a jam. JJ's a good friend of mine. They needed somebody to go to this thing. And it was basically a live QA with two YouTubers mm. being conducted by a third YouTuber. Oh, that's right. I think you haven't told the story on here, but I've heard the story. It's a yes. good story. So, <laughs> so I go there and there are people who have flown in from like other, other cities, countries. And, maybe. And, uh, I think there might've been a couple and it was like, this place was packed, mm. packed to the gills. There were, uh, two people operating the camera, but when I say that, there was a PA with the wide shot in the back who was like hitting record, and then there was me. They had me shoot some green screen stuff, and I'm like, oh, I'm you're you're the expert now. Yeah, I don't know how this happened, but then I was also getting like all the I was getting the closer shots of them and all the stuff. Yes, and so I'm watching these three people. So it's a moderator and and two YouTubers. Yeah, and. Uh, <laughs> And everyone's talking very articulately about what they do, and they have a lot of deep thoughts about it. And I'm like, oh, okay, cool, yeah. Uh, let me, you know, I'm, I'm interested. So I go home, and the next morning, I'm like, I'm gonna watch these guys' videos. Mm. They were both guys, actually, yeah. all, all three were guys. So uh, the person who moderated the panel, his name, I think, I think it's cool to say, his name is King Batch. That's that's what he's known as. Mm. And his, what, his, what does King Batch do? Uh, I think right now he does a lot of stuff on Snapchat, but at the time he had a YouTube channel and his stuff was amazing. It was good enough to be on Saturday night live. It was very funny Mm -hmm. at the time. He had a parody of the, of the, uh, Denzel Washington movie flight where he played Denzel Washington, but it was as a bus driver and it was a very funny premise and it paid off well and it looked professional. Hmm. I'm not going to name the other two people because both of their stuff was garbage. If you and I decided right now to go make a comedy sketch on my iPhone. Yes, both of us non-comedians, but- uh, Both of us non-comedians. We could write, act in, and edit a better thing than what either one of these two people had done. And I was playing one of them in uh, in my home office as my wife was getting ready for work. And, she's, and she said, Ben, you have to turn that off. It's really pissing me off. Uh, because it was just dripping with misogyny. And I was kind of like, what the, what the fuck is this phenomenon? (laughs) So I called my friend, Chad, the guy who founded social blue book. Chad had gotten very into YouTube culture. Mm. He had his own web series for a long time uh, called clip critics, you know, and, and he's someone who I've known for a long time. And I, I believe I said to him something to the effect of, Hey, Chad, are, 
is this what the future of filmmaking is? Because if it is, I think I need to learn how to sell insurance because I'm not going to. Yeah, you're I, not going to not going to do this. <laughs> I have no desire to compete in this world of, of these people because I would look at these crap ass videos that really had no effort put into them and they had millions of views. Sure, sure. And Chad said something that always stuck with me. He said, no, it is not the future of filmmaking. Think of it more like a weird offshoot of stand up comedy mm. that if these people weren't doing this thing here, they would be at their local ha ha hut. Um, making making jokes for the locals. This is would a way they, for them. Would they really have the, you know, would they actually go to the Ha Ha Hut? Would they have the ability? Or would the Ha Ha Hut take them is yes, a better exactly. question. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Wouldn't the Ha Ha Hut be the gatekeeper it, it, of... There is some, but, but I mean, like, here's the thing. I can't besmirch what apparently millions of people love. Yes, you can. That That's exactly I, what people do every day with pop music. <laughs> so. No, I mean, to me, it's like, I can say, like, uh, and I know this isn't necessarily your point, but uh, but I can look oh. at something like that and say, like, that's not part of the filmmaking world that I want to be a part of. And at that time, which wasn't it was maybe like five, six years ago, if mm. that anyone with kids was like, oh, television is dead because all my kid does is watch YouTube. Well, not true. Here we are. And the more things change, the more they stay the same, which isn't to say people don't watch Lots of YouTube, but like, no, you know, PewDiePie has not like replaced all entertainment in the world. No, that's true. It has not become idiocracy yet. But no, <laughs> but really, really my point. I'm not saying it's idiot. No, no. But but we all feel like, especially with our president in chief, with the uh, now my now my politics are showing now that our reality star president is uh-huh. uh, moving us closer to the idiocracy needle. It's true. Are, yeah. OK, so we are watering our crops with uh, with, <laughs> with Brando. Yeah. Yes, exactly. The thirst mutilator. Uh, <laughs> if you haven't seen Idiocracy, go watch. That. Great. Movie. It's really great. I think it's on streaming right now. But but here's my point. My thesis of this whole thing is. Those of you who are calling yourself an expert or those of you who think that uh, you're an influencer and also an expert, and you, and you might be, it's possible, uh, that bar of what is an expert is getting higher now because so many other people are using that moniker. So many other people are coming into this space and they're saying, I'm the authority figure, I'm this. Guess what? It's like, I better listen to your diet uh, advice because you're called the food babe. Yeah. <laughs> So obviously they they know about they know. obviously she she must know about it otherwise would she she would be the you know not the food not she'd be the food hag you know what she's she's only one semester ahead of the people who have <laughs> who have never taken anything well, regarding food and, so. and I know this isn't what you're necessarily talking about but there's tons of people out on YouTube who who put themselves forward as camera experts camera experts and I'm and not going to name names but we can name some names no I know but I, I actually posted something on Facebook the other day I just basically said you know attention you you f uh uh just because you say you know what a a lens is for filmmaking doesn't actually mean that you know none of the lenses you are reviewing have anything to do with filmmaking and 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 here's the thing with like vernacular i like all these people calling themselves wedding cinematographers or just cinematographers and they're shooting local corporate videos there's a reason that we kind of have some of these monikers and stuff that they they describe what you do and there's no shame in being a videographer a wedding videographer a commercial shooter a director of photography any of these sort of things but when you specifically say cinematographer you're talking about someone who is, shoots something that people are paying money to go see people are not paying money to go see someone's wedding so i mean there's no there's not even though i understand there is now a wedding film festival and i'm not trying to oh my throw, god really yeah i know it's but, i guess but, when i hear cinematographer the the root word there is cinema, cinema. which to me means you make movies that that's right and and, and again like I you think said you can lump 
television with that because television's never been yeah. more cinematic. And I know but, that it's often interchangeable, especially with us. You'll you'll will say it interchangeably with director of photography. That's right. But a director of photography could be somebody who's just shooting a corporate thing. And no, again, no shame in it. There's at no all. there's no shame in in what you do. But I think that all these people who are trying to, okay, I'm, I'm going to go on a, a slight offshoot tirade all on this right. here for a second. Strap um, in everybody. All right. Uh, there's there's a, a certain form of modification to stills lenses that some people refer to as cine mods or other sorts of modifications. And basically three things happen. And I'm not going to go down into the technical rabbit hole here, but just attention, all non-technical people who think that doing some sort of cinema style mod to your lens makes your lens better. It doesn't actually change your <laughs> lens in any way. It's that the same is, glass. It's exactly the same lens. But I have, uh, I deal with this, uh, repeatedly with people and during my day job people call up and like well uh, you know my lenses are, are better because they're they're modded they're modded here for cinema and i have to say that um i don't think that half of them know what they paid for when they when they have this process done it's kind of like snake oil it's like uh, i i feel like there's nothing wrong with it but you should go in eyes wide open knowing what you're paying a few hundred dollars for and just because someone says this is the next best thing to very expensive cinema glass doesn't necessarily make that true depending on what you're doing. And so I hate to say this, since we have a podcast about this, does this make us kind of influencers? No, I, I, you know what? I don't think so. I would much, look, I don't want to be an influencer. I would much rather be perceived as a genuine thought leader, if anything, because being an influencer, I feel like it's meaningless these days. You want to actually have some expertise in what it is that you're talking about. You actually want to maybe have gone to school or maybe have real world practical experience and maybe not just be one semester ahead of the people who are just starting. I think mm. that's a I think that's a, a recipe for disaster. You ought to be able to, you know, hold your own in a debate. You ought to be able to talk to other professionals and peers and be able to discuss whatever it is that you that you need to discuss. Also, I feel like we just kind of create a, uh, uh, you know, Feedback we, loop. we no. well, you and I with the podcast, we create a, a, a place for real working cinematographers to come in and talk. And then, you know, we ask bonehead questions to them. We're not saying I'm, I'm not here saying that I'm a cinematographer and here's what I would do. And you are an expert in lenses and, and camera gear because that's your stock and trade. And you've been doing that as long as I've known you. Yeah, I don't even want to talk about how many decades this is, but but Jesus it, it's a lot. But then you know, uh, and don't don't sell yourself short here. You understand the vocabulary of the film language, and you have now interviewed all these cinematographers. And when was the last time you asked one someone a question that wasn't in, in that wasn't a joke? And you saw them laugh at your question, which like <laughs> I, I've seen I've seen other people do these interviews. I've seen oh god, there was a very famous cinematographer interviewed by someone from a. I'm going to say uh, more or less a superhero sort of fan website mm -hmm. conglomerate recently. And the first question for this gigantic, like huge movie this person had just saw, shot was something to the effect of like, so do you just kind of figure out what you're doing on the day or do you plan it in advance? And it was like, what? what? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's it's no wonder that people feel so relieved and grateful when they come on the show, because I'd like to think that we ask questions that are relevant and that people want to talk about they want to talk about enough, stuff. enough up our own butts yeah right we're up. really up there now i'm like super far so okay anyway. enough of this uh i think that's you know enough for george floyd's uh close focus let's get on to the interview here we go the cinematography podcast interview 
Rodrigo, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I first became aware of you, I think back like many people with Amoros Peros, and have been tracking your very prolific career all these many years, and you've done a lot of wonderful stuff all the way up to today, The Irishman, which I, th- I think is probably what uh, the overlords at Netflix would like us to talk about, and we'll talk about that certainly a little bit. And in fact, my first question, though, is... How do you think that your work has changed besides getting to play with all the fancier tools now, maybe from since uh, the beginning, sort of Amoris, Amoris Peros era? Uh, how do you think your work has changed as a cinematographer over your career? Well, um, I will say that especially when I was beginning, I would do anything that came across me. You know, it was just starting. So so whatever I was offered, you know, I'd do. So I, I really did learn lighting and my job by filming constantly anything <laughs> and um so i have had experience in extremely low budget filmmaking and uh, you know bigger movies let's say like the irishman but the the constant that i've discovered is that there's never enough money first of all no matter what level in fact i remember one of the movies where i struggled the most with the budget was uh, alexander which was a movie that oliver stone directed with huge battle scenes and we were shooting in morocco and thailand and england and yet you know they couldn't afford certain lenses that i wanted to use or that sort of thing so it's always a struggle and i must say that It feels to me very similar when when I'm shooting The Irishman than when I shot my student films or Amores Perros or any any movie that I've participated in. And there's always uh, more ambition than there's uh, budget. And uh, for example, I've, I've heard that expression before, you know, now, now that you have the toys, well, kind of, you know, you do have access to certain tools but you always have to negotiate you always have to uh you know with production okay so i really want to do this effect here or this kind of camera move so we need whatever tool is necessary for that but then okay i'll you know we'll relinquish this and that for tomorrow or for the next day you know so it's always like that and um certainly the irishman was particularly thrilling Scorsese, you know, has been uh, for so many people, but certainly for me, uh, uh, an inspiration since I uh, started being aware of his work. And it's such a dream come true to to you know to participate in the project like this with him. Silence also was incredible, and Wolf of Wall Street. I mean, just it's been an incredible time working with him. Uh, and now with these actors, it's 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 really thrilling and uh, and special. But. Like I say, it was also thrilling and special when I was shooting, you know, even the movies I did before Amores Perros, which was my ninth movie. And by the way, that was the first film that I came to Camarimage with Amores Perros. So it's it's really special for me to be back now with this movie. Let me ask you, though. So it's been, uh, this is your third movie, third collaboration with uh, Martin Scorsese, if, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. What's the preparation for something like that? I would imagine that uh, Martin probably likes to, to really have everything planned out. I feel like he is a very meticulous filmmaker. At least that's that's my understanding from, from, from what I've heard. What's that mean for you? Does that mean months ahead of time of getting all of everything in, uh, getting everything lined up? I know that the position of uh, director of photography on large movies, too, ends up being a lot of management. You're managing, uh, you know, camera department, lighting department, grip department. Mm-hmm. Uh, how much prep and how much management is is going on on, on a Martin Scorsese set? Yes, uh, it, it is more than usual for me. I, I do come in very early on, and uh, even the scouting before even Scorsese sees the locations, I, I, which I really appreciate that the opportunity to go with a production designer early on to choose the locations and have a say and input 
on on you know especially the exterior scenes you know to, so that they can be properly oriented and this sort of thing and then we come up with a plan that we present to Scorsese uh, in terms of for example that the locations and also there is a lot of um, additional work uh, in the sense that Scorsese for example takes usually around two weeks where he sequesters himself in a hotel room and does a shot list during that time pre-production is still ongoing but nobody can bother him that you know he has to concentrate fully on the shot list so then I'm the one who's barraged with questions from every other department and, uh, and I have to sort of guess what Marty will want and uh, you know there's now a level of, of trust where he he's okay with me you know sort of helping with those type of decisions that normally you know uh, maybe a director would be involved from the beginning but then then I present all these things to him and then we get you know his input but um, it really has been a, a long preparation and uh, you're right about his meticulous attention to all the details but within that he, he's always willing to let things happen to even you know with the actors there's depending on the movie but there he does leave room for improvisation uh, I mean certainly on Wolf of Wall Street there was enormous amount of improvisation on this movie there was some of that too we shot a lot of it in fact all the dialogue scenes with two cameras simultaneously crossing each other which is a big challenge for lighting but for him it was very important that the actors feel free to do that to improvise to react in whatever way and then we'd already captured it because the two cameras are seeing both of them you know sometimes we'd have a third camera shooting the two shots so that was even more challenging for lighting but uh there there is that preparation but there's also that flexibility and that's that's really enjoyable inside all of the uh the meticulousness and the, the how well planned out everything is now that you have these uh, moments of improvisation is that fun for you or does that like throw a monkey into the into the works is it do you, do you like the improvisation do you like because i assume there's some improvisation then uh for the part of camera as well too it's not just for the actors mm -hmm. actor wants to move here or actor wants to do something mm -hmm. do you like do you like the improvisation is that fun oh yes i, I i've always you know it, it keeps you on your toes sometimes it can be tricky the unexpected right but I do I do enjoy that and, and one of my favorite things is putting things in place and then the the sort of the happy accidents uh, you know and when when that occurs and you hadn't even thought of it and it's just even more thrilling than the, when you completely designed it and it works out you know when you design something more or less and then boom something happens unexpected it, it's it's even more magical um, having said that sometimes the, particularly in Wolf of Wall Street, I remember doing the, you know, wide shot of a scene and then going in for coverage. And in the coverage, there'd be a new improvisation. And that meant now we, we'd have to do the wide shot again. And in exteriors, that could be a big problem because especially on wide shots, you don't have that amount of control. So I always tried to time it so that the wide shot would be in the proper time of day. So then you have to come back and do it again. Now the light's not good. You know, so I did suffer that a few times and, uh, you know, but you do what you have to do and that's it. In looking back over your uh, filmography, which I'm doing right now, there's 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 so many notable things here. Of course, uh, you mentioned Alexander before, but uh, 21 Grams, 25th Hour, also uh, Brokeback Mountain, Babel, uh, I, Eight I, Mile, Eight, <laughs> Eight Mile. I mean, no, yeah. it, uh, you've done a lot of work. Uh, Water for <laughs> Elephants, um, mm -hmm. Argo. Uh, let, let's let's talk about Argo for a moment. Mm -hmm, uh, sure. You know, uh, some shoots are easy and some shoots are hard, and there's many that are in the middle. Mm -hmm. uh, tell me about your a little bit about your experience on Argo. What was uh, what was that like? Uh, coming together for you 
Argo was great. That was uh, a complex shoot. I mean, just in terms of the three worlds that are portrayed, you know, Iran, of course, the revolution, uh, then Hollywood and, and the whole, you know, section where it's all about cinema in the 70s, and then the CIA. So I always enjoy figuring out how to differentiate the different uh, worlds, you know, or, or moods or moments or whatever it may be. Ever since Amores Perros, you know, we really, every story had its own feel and look. So I, I, I approached Argo a little bit like that. And the Iranian section, we shot a lot of it in, in Los Angeles, actually. And the exteriors we shot in Turkey. So I had to come up with something that would bring it all together and, and feel in the same place with the same air so uh, we tested 16 millimeter and uh, we felt that it was a little soft in terms of definition uh, so i ended up shooting 35 millimeter but um, it was widescreen so we did two perf uh, only two perforations you know kind of like the spaghetti westerns so that gave it a grain similar to 16 because i also pushed the stock I forced, uh, developed it. So it was pretty grainy and contrasty compared to, say, Hollywood. And then the CIA, that was uh, more controlled, anamorphic, steady cam, dolly, uh, always kind of in quick movement. So anyway, it was uh, really fun to design all that with, with Ben Affleck, who really is a very knowledgeable director. He, he really understood everything I was talking, you know, when I explained, you know, I want to push process, he knew exactly what I was talking about. When I talked about one set of lenses versus a, a different set of lenses, he understood it. And, and uh, yeah, he enjoyed it. He enjoyed the technical part, too. I, I think it might be a little bit difficult to say that you have a, a real stamp signature because you do so many different styles and so many different things. But I think that is actually the the different worlds, the different sets, the different pieces and how each of them have a very uh, distinct feel. I think that might be sort of your signature because, uh, mm -hmm. of, of course, you, you definitely get that in movies like Babel. Mm -hmm. in, in Babel, there's, you know, very different worlds, very yeah. different looks, and they all... You, you you recognize uh, almost subconsciously bef before you, even you understand who your characters are, what you're seeing, because it has such a different look. Like, you know, the, the sequence in Japan is so different from the sequence with, with Brad Pitt. It's like mm -hmm. they're, they're very, very different looks. Tell me a little bit about how you originally start to craft the the idea. I assume it happens during the script phase, but are there certain like ingredients that you want to put into your your your, your soup that that gives you your your different things? I know lenses and film stocks and stuff, but but what what for you separates your your different worlds? What creates this signature style for you? Well, I think first of all, it's theoretical, right? It's an idea, and it's um, trying to understand. Uh, what uh, each character, what their worldview is and how uh, they feel about their environment. So I try to make cinematography subjective. Say the movie Beautiful comes to mind with Javier Bardem. Uh, and every shot, everything in, in that film was designed to be his point of view, his perspective. Similarly on, on, on The Irishman, it's all Frank Sheeran's perspective. So how do, what's, what's a character like? How do I represent that visually? Say in Japan, uh, in Babel, it came to mind, uh, she's deaf. So visually, I used anamorphic lenses and tried to shoot as wide open as I could so that the background would be pretty out of focus. And to me, that visually represented not hearing what's around you. You don't see what's around you visually, so you don't hear. So uh, on, on The Irishman, for example, I decided to separate the decades. And that was a, a, a emulation of, of different still photography 
amateur still photography stocks uh, emulsions. Uh, so it was Kodachrome for the 50s, Ektachrome for the 60s. And then the 70s and beyond uh, was not so much a memory thing, it was more the present. So, uh, and yeah, basically the present. But I, I went with an emulation of ENR. So it's a sort of desaturated and more contrasty look. So the color is drained as the movie goes along. You know, and all this comes from, first of all, trying to understand the story, the character, and then research. I, I look at a lot of images. In, the, in this case, I looked at a lot of photographs. And, uh, and, and then I, can't, I go to the director and present, what do you think of this? You know, and we, that, that's how the discussion begins. When, when you're going to the director and you're presenting your, your ideas for, for the look of the movie, do you use lookbooks? Do you use paintings? Do you use, what, what, what's, what's the process for, for getting your, your, because it's a little like dancing about architecture when you go to, you know, just verbally explain. Do you use some visual references or do you cite specific other movies that you want to try to, to do something similar? How, how do you do that? Usually I don't talk about other movies. Uh, I, my um, initial approach typically will be still photography because I find that the natural light that photographers capture is something that I, I find more exciting to emulate than the lighting of other cinematographers. So it's just that when I see a still photograph, there's a mystery about it, there's a sensation about the composition, about the color, about the lighting that I can discuss in detail when I see a still image. So uh, that's how I mostly work. Uh, so I, I have a collection of books and I go through my books, uh, you know, and I just look at them all while I'm thinking of the movie. And then an image will stand out to me now. Oh, this could be for such and such a scene. Da, da, da. So I put together a, a, like a lookbook with all, all these uh, images and present it to the director. Although, for example, on silence, it was uh, it, in that case, it was based on art. You know, so it depends. I, I, I wanted to represent the world of the, of the missionaries with Baroque painting style. But then Japan, I wanted to represent with the, the style of uh, screens of the, that era, of the Edo era in Japan. So, you know, so I tried to emulate that in that case. So it, it depends. But normally it will be still photography. Uh, we, we have a, a wonderful, wonderful uh, fan base, listener base, and uh, we put out a quick message on Facebook this morning asking, hey, if anyone has had questions for you. And uh, a gentleman from Nicaragua named uh, Gabo Almar asks, what do you think Mexican cinematography has contributed to the universal cinematography world uh, since the early ages of cinema until nowadays? And uh, he follows it up by saying, how did you start off on your filmmaking path? Uh, All right, so two, two, two questions for you, really. But so not, not, not too much pressure here, but yeah, Mexican cinematography in the world of cinematography. <laughs> yeah. Gabo, gracias por tu pregunta. Um, okay, so it's a big question. And uh, uh, of course, I think all of us Mexican cinematographers have been greatly influenced by Gabriel Figueroa, for sure. And uh, his powerful, powerful uh, lighting, composition, and uh, depiction of uh, Mexico. You know, it was uh, like the muralists, uh, you know, in the 40s, uh, 50s, uh, or earlier as well. He, he, he was a muralist in movement. So I think we all kind of inherited that tradition in a way, even though we're not, it, the style is very, very different. But um, one of the only autographs I have, one of them is from La Perla, a movie that Gabriel Figueroa shot and he autographed it for me. And the other one, by the way, is my other autograph, is a, a poster of Raging Bull that while I was shooting The Irishman, my wife got uh, for my birthday, Scorsese and Pesci and De Niro to sign it. So those are my autographs. That's fantastic. But, uh, <laughs> That's great. <laughs> what we've contributed, I don't know, but I, I would say that uh, every 
what's fascinating to me about cinema is how uh, it's borderless and and in a way you know and it's it breaches the idea of uh, artists being only from one place. Uh, why would um, a Mexican cinematographer sh shoot with a Taiwanese director a movie about uh, homosexual cowboys in Wyoming? Uh, why would a Mexican cinematographer shoot a movie about hip-hop uh, in Detroit? And by the way, talking about 8 Mile, uh, I was inspired, by the way, on the colors of a mural by Diego Rivera that's in the Detroit Institute of the Arts, where he painted the industry with cyan green colors uh, combined with orange. And that inspired me to use that color for the lighting of, of 8 Mile. So uh, when you talk about how, you know, Mexican cinematographers influence cinema, I guess sometimes it's, it's that. It's, it's how we bring our own culture and our own uh, understanding of color uh, and of everything else into the culture of, of, of cinema, of, of images and movements. And, and and our our last question because we're running out of time here. I've just got the got the warning. Um, how did you get started down this uh, filmmaking path? Well, it all started with stop motion. Actually, when I was uh, a kid, uh, I was a fanatic of monsters, and uh, along with my brother Antonio and I, we uh, started doing little little uh, dioramas with uh, clay monsters. And my father had a, a Bell and Howell uh, Super 8 camera. And we started doing stop motion. Uh, we were fans of Ray Harryhausen and, you know, his stop motion. He's a master. And so that's how I, I started, just doing these little 8 millimeter and then Super 8. And, then, you know, and then we graduated into sound and editing and rewinding the film to, you know, do spaceships and uh, science fiction. And, uh, you know, it started evolving until, you know, here I am doing a movie with Martin Scorsese. Uh, Rodrigo, this is, this is wonderful fun. I'm so glad that you were able to, to join us, and uh, I really hope we can have you back again. I hope so, too. Thank you so much. All right, that was amazing and, again, super jealous. I, I can't wait to have a much longer interview with Rodrigo. Let's I think bring him in. Let's bring him in. Yeah, we'll do it. We'll, 100% we'll do it. All right, so, Ilya, you know what time it is now. Oh, oh, is it bill-paying time? It is bill-paying time, and I actually have a personal story that is a non made up story. What? Oh, like like all your other stories are made up? Is yes. that what you're saying? It, I, I'm saying that it's not like a part of a, part of a sales pitch. Oh, the, gotcha. This, this is, is so. This is like the, life imitating art. Sort of. So our sponsor today is Musicbed, and we've had Musicbed on for a while, and we're very excited to have Musicbed. So I am working currently right now, this minute, while I'm making this ad, while I'm doing this read, uh, I'm working for a client editing a project. And we needed some music. And a lot of times when I'm editing something for a client, they'll just throw me a bunch of music tracks that they got from wherever, or you know, they'll go download some stuff from whatever site they go to. In this case, they didn't have anything. And they're like, hey, I'm tired of using, I'm not gonna name the site, but there's a site that they used a lot. And they're like, I feel like I've kind of burned through what I like. <laughs> whatever was good there. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I said, well, would you be okay with me trying Musicbed? Because I hadn't personally used Musicbed very much. I, I used them <gasps> on a client one time a, a while ago. It's the first time since they were a client that I had a call to. Uh, and in all fairness, Musicbed has only been a sponsor for a short period of time, but you did 
go ahead and give them a try now. So you're speaking with authority. You're, you're using <laughs> yes. to, and and use the promo code so CinemaPod for I a did. free month. Yeah. yeah. So I, I signed up and uh, and I actually told this client like, hey, you know, like I have this podcast and you know we can use this uh, CinemaPod thing. So I I went ahead and did it and I downloaded a bunch of music. So you can download music with like a watermark on it basically and 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 without a watermark. That's true. You can download it without a watermark. Once you, you create your account, log in, download without a watermark. And uh, if you just want to personally listen to those songs and not pay a license fee, some people might want to do that. No, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> just but put, it, yeah. put it on your uh, on your on, on your on your cell phone. On you're your, driving around on your iPod. Yeah, that's right. Or whatever. You're in the car, yeah. listening to anyway. Music. Okay. So I downloaded uh, a batch of music. He sort of liked one of the tracks. Uh, I can I'll even tell you the name of the track and the artist. So the track was Yellow, and it was by somebody named Eric Kinney. Oh. So he liked that. Yeah. So here's what I did, because I wanted to give him a, a, a bunch of options. I went to Musicbed, and if I clicked on that, it gives you suggestions of people who are similar. Oh, yeah. So I was able to go through and listen to a few other uh, artists. Uh, I found an artist named Luca Tensio uh, with a track named Threads. Threads is what we've been using on on the project. That, so here's Threads in the background right now as we're talking. Right here. Mm-hmm. Enjoy. And uh, and maybe one day you'll see this video and you'll go, that was the one Ben was talking about. But ben I can't totally I, use that music. I don't kiss and tell. Yeah. <laughs> um, they, they could yet change their mind. But the point is, and I'll, I'll read a few of them. Uh, there was one by Ben Rector called Old Friends Instrumental. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was one that I liked a lot uh, by somebody called Long Lake called Montana. Uh, That's a good track. Jordan Critz, uh, Infinite. There were a bunch of these, and you can uh, easily search by genre or keyword, or let's say you, you just want something that's driving. Put driving in there, and you'll get choices that say that are driving, and you can choose stuff that is uh, instrumental or has vocals, which is honestly very helpful if you're editing uh, a video and you don't want vocals for a distracting reason you can choose those but if you were making a film or something and you wanted to have like an amazing track that would be like an interlude between scenes or something and vocals were appropriate for what you were doing uh, you, they got you covered there too and they also have a variety of different uh, licenses and that was one of the things that we had to go through is I had to show him the licenses mm. so he could show those to the agency and get them approved before we even started and that was an easy process because it's all Right there in front in music bed. They're really amazing. And you might think, I don't really produce all that much stuff, or maybe I only make the occasional sort of like video. You should, I'm going to encourage everyone to still just go experience Musicbed because uh, there's a lot of sites doing similar stuff but Musicbed's made it really easy and they're they're a fantastic sponsor of the show you should definitely try them out I think the music's great the only thing that was hard was like sifting through the awesome to find the few things that I that, needed for the client that yeah, were appropriate for this pro- project I agree and actually as I was editing something uh, for us coming up here soon that's gonna go live I kept finding other songs I was like oh this one's great oh, oh this one's even better yeah. so it used to be in the past with like music libraries really hard to find the passable let alone the yeah. best and then even better than the best yeah there's always so. that fear of like it all sounds corporate or whatever yes and can this is not the case no it's, it's super it, not it, doesn't, it does not sound like industrial music because it isn't it's real musicians yeah they, they did a great job okay we also have to thank our other sponsor uh other sponsors aperture aperture makes incredible led lights they also make incredible uh, accessories and one of the accessories they have uh, now that is making a lot of uh, waves in the industry because it's it's basically new people haven't really been doing this the same way they have a device called the spotlight and the spotlight essentially turns any of their lights and actually some lights made by other people too it fits on there uh, wink in, wink nudge nudge yes exactly so if you have a light that has a Bowens mount um, which a lot of 
sort of what they call mono light cell lights do you can turn it into an ellipsoidal or a leco so uh, for for people out there who don't know what I'm talking about there is a very particular type of light that is a hard light and it is it's like a, a theater light a lot exactly like we, we I, I know leco's from Gobos, high school because exactly yeah. high school productions yeah. we use leco's we use they, ellipsoidal reflector lights that's it this is what I, so this is what it does it takes uh, one of their like very powerful cool lights like I talked about the last couple of weeks uh, 120d mark II, 300d mark II, and turns it into a leco and uh yeah it's just it's amazing it's like a spotlight it is it's like focusable a like it's got a lens uh and it does it has there's three different lenses that you can get for it too different uh, degrees of spots and uh you can do super super cool stuff if you go to the uh aperture website it's uh, products.aperture.com forward slash spotlight dash mount forward slash and they have a really nice landing page of all the stuff also uh there's a link on there to buy it now Buy it at Hot Rod Cameras. You want to help support the show and stuff, go buy it from us. We've Nothing got them in would stock. Help, would help this show more than if everyone I, just bought stuff from you. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I never, I shouldn't say never. I think this is like the second time I've ever said, hey, if you're going to buy something, go go buy it over here. I but, say it all the time. I, I, I keep sending people to you when I when they see me I, running around with gear that I got here. I have to get over this mental block and I just have to tell people, don't actually shop with us. You, you will you will not regret it. You'll be yeah, very look, The glad. New York Times does it on the daily. They're like, you want to support the daily? Yeah, subscribe to the New York Times. You yeah. want to support the cinematography podcast? Shop at Hot Rod. Literally buy anything from Hot Rod. Yeah, we, we got bongo ties for the people who only want to spend a couple bucks. Yeah, you know, we, it's basically fancy rubber bands. That's man. exactly what they are. And then we also have, you know, anamorphic Caldwell lenses if you want to drop a couple hundred grand. So Sweet. Hey, and, and I have a suggestion. You can have this one for free. Ooh. And that's that every episode we do a thing about uh, Lico's and we'll call the segment Spotlights on Spotlight. Let's move on, shall we? Let's do it. <laughs> and now, short ends. Okay, Ben, it's time for short ends. I love it. Okay, what, what's your short end uh, this uh, week? You're going to punch me in the face. Ooh, I'm getting ready. It's another podcast. Oh, you bastard. Oh, <laughs> I just <laughs> love podcasts. You do. So uh, this podcast, I may have even mentioned on the show before because it's an amazing podcast called You Must Remember This. You have mentioned Hosted it. by a woman named Karina Longworth. And previous seasons have been great, and I'm loath to admit I kind of wandered away from it for a, for a minute. And I have to give credit to my friend Janelle Riley, who you know. Uh, doesn't she also do the Actors on Actors? Uh... She, uh, yes, she does that, and she is a writer for Variety, and mm-hmm. she also, especially this time of year, hosts numerous Q&As with all of the biggest actors and directors. I know you say she's your friend, but you know she used to actually sign my paychecks for a little while. Oh, that's true, because you, you wrote for Backstage as yeah, well. Yeah, but, but you, uh, and, and I think you hooked me up with that with Janelle. I, I wrote for Backstage a long time when she was uh, working there. Anyway, so okay. Janelle Going on. recommended, yeah. she was like, Have, are you listening to the new season of You Must Remember This? And I had, again, kind of drifted away. They did a season where they were talking, where they were unpacking Hollywood Babylon, Kenneth Anger's books, mm. and I just uh, didn't care. Um, <laughs> Bluntly, did not care. Yeah, I yeah. listened to a couple episodes, and I'm like, uh, yeah, you yeah. know, mm. whoever Burt Ward was having sex with, not that <laughs> was, important to was me. Was not <laughs> yeah. the boy wonder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I I checked it out, and it's called uh, Six Degrees of Song of the South. Oh. And holy fuck, <laughs> oh, no. is this just I? It's oh. if I, it's like a book, it's like a page turner. So for those of you who don't know, in the 40s, Disney made a movie called Song of the South. 
with a character named Uncle Remus, who is an old black, uh, possibly former slave. And he's teaching lessons to a little white boy on the farm, Reed Plantation, sure. that Uncle Remus lives on. And we go into animated sections with uh, a character named, you know, Br'er Rabbit and Br'er Fox and uh, Br'er Bear. And uh, the rabbit actually uh, has a, a literal fight with a baby made of tar. I don't know if you're getting Whoa. the mildly racial Whoa. undertones going on here. Uh, um, I think I was four when I saw it, so I can't, I couldn't yeah. tell you anything. So this. it got re-released repeatedly, and she actually talks about this in the podcast, because I remember seeing it when I was a little kid as well. And then also we had a uh, an audio cassette version of it that we would listen to when we were doing road trips. And, uh, you know, even people who aren't familiar with Song of the South are, are probably familiar with the Disney song zippity doo da Oh, sure. And she goes into that, too. And I sort of feel like it's a weird exploration. I don't mean a weird exploration, but it's a fascinating exploration of kind of racism in cinema mm. going back to, you know, because Disney has a very positive image. And I and I feel like Walt Disney did mostly really great things for the world. But Song of the South is a weird aberration on cinema that has not aged well and has aged so poorly, in fact, that currently you can't. You can't see it like Disney doesn't have it available in any format to be seen. And uh, it's just a, it's just a really interesting podcast. Uh, Karina Longworth has done an amazing amount of research and has delved very, very deeply into how the movie got made and what Walt Disney was trying to do with this movie and what was the movie landscape like and who else did they reach out to play Uncle Remus and how was it received at the time and how was it received in subsequent re-releases? They re-released it all the way up into the 80s. Wow. That's probably when I saw it. Yeah, so, yeah. I, I think so. Or maybe I think late 70s. I think the last time they re-released it was like in 1980. And she also uses it as kind of a, an interesting springboard to talk about minstrel shows, which to me, I I always find like minstrelsy is something that I look at and I'm like, I get that it's racist. I get that it's wrong, but I don't understand why it exists at all. It's so weird. And she, she gets into that as well. And uh, I, I'm just... The last episode, she she kind of dovetailed it into a discussion about black exploitation movies uh, in the 70s and kind of the rise of that. So I just think that if, if you're a lover of American films, if you are, you know, if you are steeped in our culture, it's always interesting to kind of take a weird step back and go like, you know, I mean, I think that we're you and I are both seriously when we turn off the microphones here, we're hardcore culture critics. Probably we, we don't yes. really get into a lot of it on here. No. And it's interesting to see Although like, it bleeds through once in a while. <laughs> it's true. But I think it's what I love about what she's done here is it, it's such a weird lens to look and to, to see when we were just a little bit more openly racist and a little bit more open racism was like kind of socially acceptable, but society was kind of pivoting away from it mm. even at the time. And you kind of look at it, uh, you know, through through her storytelling, which is which is really exhaustive. She does a whole episode about Hattie McDaniel, the woman, who, the first black woman who ever won an Oscar. Mm. The first black woman who was allowed to attend the Oscars, oh, by the way. It's insane. And she's in Song of the South. So she kind of uses it sort of like she did with a few seasons ago. She did, she did a thing called Charles Manson's Hollywood. Mm. And that was what got me into it. And it's uh, that one is a series that's not really about Charles Manson, but it's about what Hollywood was like when Charles Manson was a thing. Like, how did society allow that kind of person to come into being and she really contextualizes things brilliantly talked about Roman Polanski and Sharon Tate and 
because of her, I saw the Antonioni film Zabriskie Point, which mm-hmm. is super weird. And, uh, and anyway, if, I just, I, this I, is all very topical, too, because it all I mean, there's a. Uh, all of this is in sort of the zeitgeist conversation right now, of course, with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And I will tell you, though, when you bring up the uh, bring up Song of the South, my first memory now immediately is from like the mid 2000s when uh, Saturday Night Live did a TV Funhouse episode called the, you know, back into the Disney vault. And, you know, I'll find the link and we'll put it in the show notes if anyone wants to watch it. But it's an incredibly funny animated uh, parody about this of, uh, you know, movies going into the Disney vault to be then exploited by Disney at some point in the future when they could sell it. And, uh, you know, this is the like other Disney vault where like all all of like, you know, Walt Disney's racist tendencies and other yeah. sort of like underground stuff went. And it, it's, it's, very, it's very funny, but that's sort of true. This is like, you know, this is the other thing that people People don't really talk about and Disney well, doesn't I want to talk that, about it. I think that if you were to talk to Walt Disney at the time, he would tell you that he was trying to show visibility and and to tell stories that were more diverse than what was what had been shown before. Ugh. This was kind of Ugh, where where society was, though. I mean, I don't. I actually don't especially blame Walt Disney for this kind of thing. I think that like. All of culture. She goes into this in, in amazing detail. The the episode about Hattie McDaniel, I think, is fascinating because she goes into a lot of detail about how Hattie McDaniel wins the Oscar and then 10 years later can't get work. Yeah. And to me, it's I, I, I mean, like, granted, it happens all the Holy time. Holy crap. Can we just like acknowledge for a second that uh, that we can all be so grateful that is not the world that we live in anymore? I, I mean, don't know. Like, Jay Davidson won the Oscar for uh, The Crying Game. And then what else has he done? Stargate. He did Stargate. Yeah. And then, you know what? There's a lot of people though who they didn't even win an Oscar, but they they did some sort of job, you know, in front of the camera, uh, achieved cultural significance, and then was never seen again. Yeah. It's not. It's not. This is not unique to Oscar. But Hattie McDaniel is a different story because she's she's first. She was a vaudevillian. She was she was like a hard. She was someone who had been acting for a long time before Gone with the Wind. Yeah. No. It's a. we can all be glad that that's not exactly the world that we inhabit. And I have to say that uh, we, we are living in kind of an amazing time now where there is more diverse voices. There are there is more stuff happening now than there ever has before. Are we 100 uh, percent, you know, egalitarian? Is everyone getting their thing out? Of course not. Don't but, you sometimes like look at uh, around and go like, what what is the thing that we don't notice we're doing right now that we're going to be harshly judged for 30 years hence? Mm, that's a good question, but I'm sure there'll be something. I'm sure there'll be multiple things and everyone yes. will be looking at us going, like, can you believe those people in 2019 were like <laughs> this? How, how insensitive, how, 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 well, <laughs> how discriminatory. I, yeah, I, I don't how, know. Whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah, but undoubtedly, you know, actually I, I don't know what that is, but I, I definitely think that uh, the world is significantly better than it was. Yes. Agreed. And uh, we might have a long way to go, but still, uh, at least we're going the right direction most of the time. So So. check out the new season of You Must Remember This, Six Degrees of Song of the South. It's amazing. So, Ilya, that was a long chat about that. What is your short end? Okay, so my uh, I got to give a shout out to the Hollywood Reporter. Although there are multiple um, there are multiple services who are all doing this sort of thing right now as it is Oscar season. 
uh, short lists start being developed of movies that you should see because the nominations haven't happened yet. And uh, there's a really, really good one over at thehollywoodreporter.com uh, all about the the Feinberg forecast for the 2020 Oscar predictions. And if you go down to cinematography, being this is the cinematography podcast, you will see some really, really fantastic movies, some familiar names, and also some some new names that are that are up what there. What are they? What are they? Where are well, they? Well, like front runners, of course, is The Irishman, Rodrigo Prieto. Of course, he's one of the front runners there. Uh, Joker, Lauren Scherer, also fantastic. The, you know, Marriage Story, Robbie Ryan's course been on the show there, there's you know those are the sort of like the front runners that are listed up there of course once upon a time in hollywood robert richardson and uh caesar charloni who did the two popes so uh and he you might remember him too he did city of god I believe oh yes yeah. so you know, city of god is i saw that with you yeah incredible that I'll, movie, I'll never see it again it was so disturbing i, I own but. the dvd <laughs> But it is incredible. It is. It is really incredible. OK, so um, then they have major threats, including the lighthouse, which uh, I beautiful. Think, I've, yeah. I, that's one of the one. I'm not allowed to leave the house and see movies, but that's one of the ones that I snuck out and saw uh, Parasite, which also is going to I'm going to see that tomorrow at a, in a movie theater in a special movie theater where they show movies and you sit and watch them. <laughs> It's not my house. But, but I'm pretty sure all. that, did you get the, the screener? I think the screener went out. I have not gotten the screener oh. for Parasite yet, but regardless, I just keep hearing nothing but uh, but giant raves about that movie, and I'm outrageously excited to see that. So Mihai is also listed as a major threat there for, for really Jojo so. Rabbit. I love Jojo Rabbit so And then much. I just saw Ford v. Ferrari, which is fucking great, and Faden did a fantastic job with that. Well, and Faden's amazing, and James Mangold ha- has literally never made a movie that I didn't like. I think he's, he's an for whatever reason, he he doesn't get. He's not like out in front. He does he doesn't get a whole lot of publicity for himself. Every fucking movie that guy makes is pretty amazing. Uh, he made a- Logan for God's sake. That, I I had stopped caring about X Men. That is the best the best Wolverine movie. I agree. Like, I think yeah, it's, I think it might doubt. be the best superhero movie. I, I mean, it's, it's really it's, good. It's, it's among the top two or three superhero movies ever made, in my opinion. Wow. Okay. Uh, that's 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 high. Praise. You don't agree. I know anyway. it's high, that's high praise. No, yeah. I, Faden didn't right. shoot that though. So no. Uh, but you know, there's also some other things listed in the possibilities, including uh, Natasha Brayer's Honey Boy, uh, which is on there. I do uh, have the screener for that. I have not watched it yet. Uh, Roger Deakins is also in that category for the Goldfinch and uh, Avenger- Wait, Roger Deakins for best cinematography uh, never <laughs> happened. <laughs> uh, it happened last last year. Uh, was it last never, year? Never. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, and then there's some other things here. They say long shots, uh, which, uh, yeah, there's there's some, there's some long shots, but there's some really good looking movies in there. And then there's still to come, uh, which includes uh, Ad Astra, uh, which is Hoyta van Hoytma. So, uh, you know, uh, known to look uh, incredible. And then it's uh, also there's other things in here like uh, Dan Mindell for Star Wars, The Rise of Skywalker. And of course, Roger Deakins again for 1917. So there's a lot of good movies here worth taking a look at if you are an aspiring cinematographer and you want to see the current crop of stuff at the highest level. And you level. want to see what you're competing with as an aspiring cinematographer. No, if you're an aspiring cinematographer, here's your it's chance. It's you to... versus Deacons, no, man. No, you're not letting me finish. You, you, this is your chance to get inspired. This is your chance to see like the state of the art. This is your chance to see what people are doing. And and I'm including especially like things like The Lighthouse in there, which like state of the art, black and white, four by three. Shot on film. Shot on film. Incredible. So, I mean, really what... The cinematography is one of the... I mean, I liked that movie a lot, but the cinematography is one of the most engaging aspects of that movie. Like, you cannot separate that movie from the cinematography. It's such a statement. 
So, so anyway, uh, it's, it is of course the very last category for the Hollywood reporters website. Uh, uh-huh. I want all the front runners and things. So if you scroll all the way to the bottom of the page, you'll get there quickly. But I mean, yeah, uh, if you don't know what to see and you're like, God, what should I catch up on this list here on the Hollywood reporter is fantastic. And you can, uh, definitely spend some time going through doing your pay-per-views or theaters or other, or like figuring out your short list of how am I going to play along at home and root for what this is how you can find some good stuff. Awesome. Well, I will check that out. All right. So Although I don't need to because you just listed all of them. <laughs> you just, I just listed all of them and you've seen a bunch of them. So, so uh, who do we need to thank? All right. So guest shows over. Time for the thank yous. No, why don't we say where do you, where, where can people find you? Oh, uh, if people are interested in finding me, I would say just go to benrockonline.com because I have links to all the social medias there. But if you don't like using the regular internet, uh, I'm... Uh, at My ne- phone number is... <laughs> I'm at Neptune Salad on Twitter and uh, I'm on I'm on Facebook and LinkedIn just as me, Ben Rock, and feel, several people who are, who are listeners of the show have reached out to me and I am happy to talk to all of you. Agreed. And if you have questions or comments for us, uh, please uh, reach out. Absolutely. You can find me over here at Hot Rod Cameras. Uh, we have a... Uh, you can physically find Ilya here. And if you show up and demand a t-shirt, he'll give you one. I have to say, though, that we are basically out of the Hot Rod Camera shirt. So it might be a Canon shirt or it might be some other bit of swag that... Uh, Canon. Canon makes great stuff. And they have a really cool new camera coming out. We're going to do some fun stuff with it. But Sweet. they were here yesterday and they left us a big box of swag uh, so if you have if you're an extra large or a small, that's what's left. Uh, we can give you a Canon shirt or, you know, come I'm an on extra in. large. All right. Well, I'll give you a Canon shirt when this Sweet. is over. So, uh, OK, let's thank uh, Kay Zalatracci. Not listening. Not listening to the show at all. Kay's is uh, kind of a mid-level uh, Velociraptor. <laughs> His tail is about eight feet tall. He weighs in at about a ton and a half. And uh, yes, uh, very, very stinky dinosaur breath. He also composed all the music you heard in the show, except for the music bed music, music bed stuff. Okay, uh, let's thank. Do we already thank Alana Cody? We did not. Okay, Alana Cody. Let's thank. Thank you. A thousand thank yous, Alana. You're really kicking ass as a producer, and uh, it's 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 showing in our output. And, you know, and uh, not and, just as a producer. She's just like kicking butt in life. Well, and and she had a great Twitter or not Twitter, uh, Facebook post today where she said she wants to star in a reality show called Finding Roger Deakins, I believe. Did she really? Yeah. (laughs) So so you're just going to bring that into the show here. This is sure to get Roger to to come on the show. Well, I I just I I just think that now it's sort of like a Roger. I want to it is (laughs) uh, it's it's Roger Deakins in me. And so I think that we need to start the, the countdown to. When do we get Deacons on the show? I mean, we might never get Deacons on the show, but it gives people something to root for. I, I think that pretty much maybe uh, 13 years, 14 years into doing this, maybe we'll get uh, maybe we'll get our chance. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I don't know. I think we're pretty much uh, so assured now that if uh, Alana has made a Facebook page or Facebook post called, uh, you know, Roger and me in the search for Roger Deacons, we're never getting Roger on the show. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you're wrong because uh, I have a lot of questions. Yeah, I hope so, too. Uh, okay, so uh, Ben, Ben Katz. Ben Katz, our fine editor who we make his life hell, and he, he, he spins yeah. it into gold. He, he comes back for more. And he it, makes us sound not as dumb as we are. <laughs> Which is a really, really uh, tough job. I mean, I'm from Florida. <laughs> uh, you're Florida man. <laughs> <laughs> I am. Uh, all right, well, we'll be back really soon with a really fantastic interview, and uh, be sure to join us. I can't wait. It will be one week from now. Awesome. Thank you very much. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. 
Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thank you.